0: Hello, I'm Chris Kreitchow, and this is New Rust Station, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode for Rust 1.26. As it turns out, 1.26 is one of the biggest single point releases in Rust's entire history. An awful lot dropped in this release. So let's dig in. The biggest set of changes here is in the language itself. There are, by my count, five major stabilizations in the core language this release. And there would have been one more, but it ended up being rolled back because the beta release found some bugs in it. Hooray for the release process. First up of these is one of the biggest, and what I think will prove to be one of the most important changes to Rust since 1.0, the trait feature landing. I'm going to keep my summary of this pretty brief because a large chunk of the next teaching episode, which should be out fairly soon, will focus on all the nitty-gritty details. The very short version is that where historically you wanted the return type from a function to be a trait instead of a concrete type, you had to wrap it in a pointer. Most typically, you'd see something like the function returning box around iterator with item equal u32. For the case where what you cared about was not the concrete iterator type, but merely that it was an iterator around U32s. This meant two important things. One, you always had heap allocations, whether or not you actually needed them for any reason other than that the type being returned was a trait, thus the box or some other similar heap-allocated pointer. Two, you always had dynamic dispatch rather than static dispatch. And most of the time in Rust, we do get static dispatch, and that's useful. That goes even for generics but not for traits in this context because it was behind the box pointer. Imple trait eliminates both of those. You can now write, both in function argument position and in return position, impl iterator item equal u32. Now, there are times when you still need a pointer and need dynamic dispatch. In particular, anytime you're returning different iterator types from the same function, so if you're returning a vec in one case and a hash map in another, you'll need to return a box around them and use Dynamic Dispatch. But for the simple cases, you can now get Static Dispatch with all the monomorphization benefits that come from that. You get rid of the Heat Pointer, and not least, you get much nicer type mismatch errors when you get something wrong. Again, we'll talk a lot more about this when I get the second part of our Traits Deep Dive episodes out. The next major change to the language, which I think is also a contender for biggest change since 1.0, is new match behavior when you're dealing with references. Historically, when you wrote a match against a reference type, let's assume you're writing one against a reference to an option of a string, you'd write something like this. Match, optional string, open curly braces, ampersand sum to indicate again that you're Referencing a reference, ref name to indicate that you're getting the thing inside by reference, and then the match arm, print line hello, curly braces name, or ampersand none. Again, we're getting a reference to a none. Print line hello somebody, since we don't have a name. To summarize, there's an ampersand reference operator that has to go before the sum or none, and there's a ref before the Wrapped name inside the sum pattern match. If you missed any of those, the Rust compiler would tell you exactly what to write to make it type check, but you still had to fill it in yourself. This is more than just a little paper cut, and it shows up constantly in idiomatic Rust because we use references constantly in idiomatic Rust. Rust 1.26 changes all of that. Precisely because the compiler can figure out exactly what you need here, now it does. It knows you're matching against references to the enum variants, and it knows that you're getting a reference to the contents. So now it does that automatically. So from 1.26 forward, you'll write it the way you probably expected to write it in the first place. Match optional string, sum, name, match arm, print line, hello, curly braces, name. Or none, match arm, print line, hello, somebody. No more ampersands, no more ref in front of the wrapped name. And the types there, including lifetimes and borrow analysis, are all still just exactly what they were before. We haven't lost any safety here. It's just less for you to type out when the compiler already knew what you needed there. There's also another match-related feature that landed in 1.26, fixed entry slice patterns. This is for the case where you want to pattern match against a slice, and there are specific scenarios you want to handle for example if you wanted to match on an array of numbers and do one thing if it started with one and something else otherwise you can do that now you can say match that array and your first match block might be open brace one comma whatever else close brace do something with it and then a default for all the other options There are notes in the Rust release blog post, which I've linked to in the show notes, that give you some more detailed examples for this, and the cases where you can exhaustively match and where you can't. Worth taking a look at. This is super nice. I've wanted it, even though I haven't gotten to write a ton of Rust code. It comes up pretty often. Next up, one of the pain points most people run into pretty early in their time with Rust, and that continues to bother you however long you've been using Rust, is dealing with error handling, particularly in main. Most places in Rust, essentially everywhere in Rust except main, in fact, you can return a result type, and you can use the question mark operator to just short circuit and return the error case early. This lets you basically write your local code in a function, all on the happy path, while still explicitly opting into returning early for error handling and treating errors as values. But, as I noted, not in the main function. Until 1.26, main always had to return the unit type. As of 1.26, though, main can return a result. The only requirements are that the OK type in the result must be unit, and the error type must implement debug so that it can be printed. This gets rid of a speed bump for new programmers, of course. But it also means that the rest of us don't need to have our main just call a run function which happens to return a result that we ourselves debug, print, and quit if it's an error. Which is a thing that a lot of us have done. There are a couple other nice syntax stabilizations as well. I told you there's a lot here. One is inclusive range syntax. We've had exclusive range syntax for a while. You could write 0.10 and that would give you 0 through 9 but excludes 10. If you want the range 0 to 10, including both 0 and 10, you can now just write 0 dot dot equals 10. It's not the prettiest syntax I've ever seen, but it does get the job done. Finally, last bit of syntax stabilized here, you can explicitly write single quote underscore underscore in places where lifetime annotations would normally be elided. And here I'll refer you to the original RFC, number 2115, for the details. It's a pretty nuanced discussion, and it's a really well-written RFC. It's worth your time. The new syntax here is just letting us use underscore in lifetimes the same way we can in other contexts in the language already. We don't need to name this particular type or value, but we want a placeholder for it so you can see that it's there. The kinds of spots you'll drop this in are places where you want to make it explicit that a borrow is happening. For example, you might want a return type where a borrow could be alighted, but where it's helpful to show that it's happening to include the lifetime, but you don't necessarily care what the name of that lifetime is. It doesn't need to be lifetime A. It can just be a lifetime underscore, and that communicates that a borrow is happening. There is a lifetime bit of data here, but it's not a named lifetime. We don't care about it at that level of detail. We don't need to track it through. There are also some nice additions to the standard library, a bunch of them. Here, I'm only touching on a couple of them, the ones that specifically caught my eye. First up, the FS, as in file system module, now has a number of really nice convenience methods. Each of them lets you do fewer module imports and skip some intermediate allocations, intermediate variables. FS read reads the whole contents of a file to a buffer of bytes. FS read to string does the same, but as a string instead of a buffer. And FS write writes a buffer of bytes directly to a file. Previously, you had to open both the FS file and the standard IO read or standard IO write modules, and then open or create the file prior to writing it. And that wasn't terrible, but let's be honest, it's a lot nicer to be able to just do let. Contents equal fs read to string path to a file instead of having to do the intermediate dance. There's also a nice new method on the HashMap entry type and modify. This lets you update an existing entry if it exists before inserting a new element if it doesn't exist there were ways you could do this before but you usually needed intermediate terms and you ran into some of those annoying problems with the borrow checker around borrows around hash maps which are the whole reason that entry exists in the first place this and modify gives you a nice another shortcut along the way the last of the standard library changes i want to call out is one of those little things that's actually quite surprising to me that we didn't already have. Process ID is just a really simple function that gives you the operating system assigned process ID associated with a process where you call the function. There are a bunch more, and they're all in the release notes, so you should take a look. I have linked them in the show notes. On the community front, there are also a bunch of neat things in motion, and I cannot keep up with all of them, especially on this every six weeks for news cadence. Your best bet, as a result, is to listen to a different podcast. I've mentioned it before, but I wanted to call your attention again to Rusty Spike, which is a weekly update with the occasional week off because people need vacations. Of all the major things going on in the Rust ecosystem, it's hosted by Jonathan Turner, who I interviewed last year, and he's doing a great job putting out roughly three to five minute episodes roughly every week for things I will cover, though. There were a trio of big related releases in the ecosystem in the last couple of weeks. The regex, CSV, and DocOpt Opt crates all hit 1.0. Now these are related because they're all maintained by Burnt Sushi, who is incredibly prolific and does a lot of great work. These three are, to varying degrees, fairly core to the Rust ecosystem. Regex, in particular, is used everywhere. And the CSV and Dock Opt crates are a good deal more specialized than RegEx is, but even so, it's really neat to see all three of them hit 1.0 with the associated commitment to stability that that entails. Each of them has already been pretty stable for quite some time, but pushing things across the finish line like this is a really important part of our story of a stable language and ecosystem. And that's important in particular as we aim to tell people that yes, it is a good time to be adopting Rust. In the WebAssembly world, that beautiful, beautiful world where I'm actually getting to write a little bit of Rust for some open source work I'm doing, there has been a lot going on in the last six weeks since Rust 1.25 came out. One of the biggest, neatest bits is that there's now an online IDE specifically targeting WebAssembly. It's called WebAssembly Studio. It's still fairly early, but it's also pretty capable, and it's a really neat little tool. There's another neat tool called Wasm Pack, which lets you take Wasm code, WebAssembly code, generated via the Wasm BindGen tool, and ship it directly to NPM for straightforward consumption from other JavaScript libraries on NPM. It's difficult for me to overstate how big of a deal this is. The barrier for shipping Wasm in the Node world, and given how much of the front-end world uses NPM, nearly all of it at this point, that is, therefore also to browsers, that barrier just got way, way, way lower. So as someone who is both a massive Rust fanboy and a front-end web developer, I could not be more excited about this. And in a happy turn, that open source work I mentioned a minute ago will get to lean hard on this and use it directly. Since the start of the year, there are also a few new Rust sub-teams that have spun up. I haven't had a chance to mention them previously. There are now working groups, which you can jump in and participate in, and I encourage you to, for compiler performance, networking tools, command line tools, WebAssembly, and CodeGen, and I hope I didn't miss any, but there might be more. Also, and my apologies for announcing this much later than I meant to, there's a really neat Visual Studio code plugin from a longtime listener to New Rustation, Marcin. It's called search crates.io. And once you've installed it, if you're in your cargo.toml file, you can just start typing crate names and it will look them up in the crates.io registry and give you a list of crates with their versions. It's a little bit rough. And in my own testing with it, it hasn't always done exactly what I expected it to, but it's a huge step in the right direction and I recommend you test it out and give Marson feedback on improving it. Ultimately, I'd like to see this functionality make its way upstream into the RLS so that we can have this functionality everywhere that we have the RLS. So much so that sometime in 2017, I filed an issue on the RLS repository suggesting exactly this. Great work to Marson, and hopefully we'll see this functionality everywhere. That is definitely not everything that has been going on in the Rust ecosystem, but it is as much as I can cover today. It somehow seems fitting to me that this release, which is essentially right at the three-year mark since 1.0, was such a huge release. But there's a lot more coming this year. So as I said in my last news episode, buckle up. Rust 2018 is quite a thing. Thanks as always to everyone who sponsors the show. This month's $10 or more sponsors included Aaron Turon, Alexander Payne, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, Benam Esfobod, Dan Abrams, Daniel Cullen, David W. Allen, Derek Buckley, Hans Fialamark, John Rudnick, Matt Rudder, Marshall Clyburn. Nathan Scully, Nick Stevens, Peter Tillemans, Paul Naranja, Olaf Leidinger, Olushei Shonaya, Ramon Buckland, Rafe Levine, Vesa Kyla Virta, and Zachary Snyder. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up ongoing contributions at patreon.com slash or you can send a one-off my way at any of a number of other services listed at newruststation.com. The website also has scripts and code samples for most of the teaching episodes, as well as transcripts for many of the interviews and full show notes for every episode. You can find the notes for this episode at newrustation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore one underscore 26. If you're enjoying the show. Please do help others find it. You can tell them about it in person. You can share it on social media. You can rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory. Or you can come up with something I've never even imagined. If you do, I would love to hear about it. The show is on Twitter, at NeuroStation. You can follow me there, at Chris Kreitcho. Do tweet at me with news. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, on Reddit, on Hacker News, on Lobsters, or you can just send me an email at hello at newruststation.com. Please do. I love hearing from you. Until next time, happy coding.